When Dan was talking about when Dan was talking about praying for the salvation of the children while I was preaching, I just thought at that point there is no excuse for closing your eyes and pretending to pray during the sermon. All right, we, I was teaching the um, I was teaching the Frontier Project um, guys this week. I did two days with them on Galatians, and I said to them, I said, if you feel sleepy, because you know you do all day long and after lunch, you know how it is. I said, if you feel sleepy, you just go to the back and walk around. You haven't got to worry about that, won't be offended by that. Any, if you fall asleep, I will publicly nail you. <laughs> I fell asleep five times in the lecture once, so I, you know, I know what it's like. So I don't, I don't feel judgmental, but I said, come on, you need, to, you need to hear this stuff, so stay awake. And they all did really well, except for one, at one point, one poor young man. He got nailed. <laughs> look up with sort of glazed eyes, you know, that sort of look. What's my name and what day is it? <laughs> so it's all good fun. So, um, okay, pray, pray for the children with your eyes open. All right, what do all these advertisements have in common? Improve your sexual performance with Viagra. Become slim by the power of positive thinking. Visit Harley Street for a plastic surgery consultation. Read this book and learn how to win friends and influence people. Improve your self-confidence with this six-week course. Discover true well-being with Radox. Lose, <laughs> lose the stress with yoga. Create a six-pack with Maxi Muscle. Come and visit the most powerful sunbeds in London. All of these advertisements have one thing in common, and it's this sense of uh, an innate human desire to change and to improve. If that wasn't in there, then they wouldn't spend millions on advertising. Oh, Travelling backwards and forwards from Wimbledon twice this week, um, a poster up on the train of this guy with this extraordinary physique. Um, I can, I, no, I did, you can too. Something like Jeff created a six-pack. You know, and, and it was just this whole thing of that would have, to have something there of that in that sort of profile all through the train would have cost millions. But they're tapping into something whereby people want to improve, people want to change, and people want to, um, people don't want to just sort of stagnate and stay the way they are. Um, at the same time, people are scared of change. People are scared stiff of change and say things like, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. That's an English phrase for basically saying, yeah, things might be bad, but at least they're familiar. Yeah? I don't want unfamiliar badness. I'd rather stick with what I've got. Or out of the frying pan into the fire. So, yes, it's changed, but it's got worse. And I think there's a real sense of change being frightening as well in terms of going into uncharted territory um, and going into new ways of um, thinking, new ways of living. What's it going to be like? Am I going to be able to handle it? Um, is it going to turn out to be good? Will what is promised actually be delivered in these various things? And I want to look at today... Um, well, the title of the message is this, Is Change Possible? Many of us would have made New Year's resolutions that came to now um, within a, a few weeks, and it can leave you wondering, is change possible? Um, and then you can read in uh, newspapers and various articles people that have had some kind of experience and changed, and for them it seems like it is possible. And I want to explore that today, looking at what the Bible teaches about change. There's a big difference between cosmetic change and internal change. I think we all agree that you can change things cosmetically. Just about six months before I became a Christian, when I was, I think, about 17, I decided, right, I am going to get a six-pack and pecs too. And I ordered a, I did, I ordered a multi-gym from the catalogue and basically filled my whole bedroom with this thing and then gave myself six months of intense milkshakes 
protein milkshakes and, um, and uh, um, bench presses to prove the point, which is quite fun because obviously I was the skinny boy, as you can imagine, and, um, well, not imagine, as you can see. <laughs> I've returned to my former self, and, um, and I gave myself six months to do this, and actually succeeded because I simply cut my sprint, said no, and I just went for it, and actually succeeded. So, and so this time, Of, of, of deeply ingrained habits, ways of thinking, attitudes, perspectives. I, is it really possible, or are, is this really just pipe dreams? Um, and so I'm going to use the word transformation. Is that possible, to be transformed from the inside? The Bible says this. If we could have the first slide up, Seb. Wakey, wakey. <laughs> He's praying for the kids. He's praying for the kids. <laughs> Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation... The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. That's what the Bible teaches. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. You can find it in there. If anyone is in Christ, been joined to Christ, come to know Jesus in relationship with him, he's a new creation. The word he is used as a generic term to cover male and female, by the way, in the Bible. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. So what seems to be, what is definitely being said here is that, yes, transformation is possible through union with Jesus, but we need to explore what that means and what that actually looks like. I want to suggest to you that Christian conversion brings on the one hand radical change, genuinely more radical than perhaps you've ever dared imagine. That at the deepest point, at the most central point of who you are, you are recreated, you are transformed. And yet at the same time, Christian conversion brings with it such a sense of coming home that it doesn't feel, in one sense, unfamiliar but you feel like actually you've come somewhere where you were always supposed to be. And so at the same time, so it offers absolute radical change, but the things that often scare people with that in terms of, you know, am I going to just absolutely lose myself? Um, will everything I'm familiar with be totally stripped away? In one sense, yes. In another sense, no. It's the most natural thing in the world. And I want to demonstrate that through today. I'm going to look at three ways that the Bible says you fundamentally change if you become a Christian. The first thing is this, is that we are given a brand new heart. Next slide, please, Seb. God says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So the suggestion there is that through life our heart, our heart gets hard. You don't have to be hurt too many times to begin to put up the walls and say that's not going to happen again. And so you, you, and what happens is your heart becomes stony. And it becomes beyond repair. It's a heart that is, um, the Bible teaches, fundamentally redirected towards sin, um, directed towards sin rather than directed towards God. Not to say that you can't be nice if you're not a Christian, not for a moment. There are some very, very nice people and good people in a sense that aren't Christians. But it means that fundamentally our hearts are directed not towards God, but towards something else, something created, be it yourself, a good cause, or something else. And the Bible describes it as a heart of stone, because you think, well, why? If you're directed to a good cause, why is that a stony heart? Because ultimately, the Bible says we were created for a relationship with God. So even if you're directed to a good cause in your heart, but not to the one who made you, then it's perverse biblically. You're not living. You're not living what you were called to be. And so it's it's a stony heart. And God promises, I will take out that and put in the heart of flesh. Now remember, biblically, the heart refers to the seat of your affections. So it's your deepest point. What really drives you? What really gets you, what really stirs and moves you. And so when you get a new heart, you've got a new moral centre. 
your affections have been altered and they've been, they've been turned now towards God who is morally perfect. And so you love him and so you live differently. That's the new heart. Before you might do good things, I'm sure people do good things, but what happens is, is that actually your heart gets directed toward, not towards religion, not towards church, not towards a belief system, towards a person, towards the creator. Your heart is turned towards him and as, you are, as, as he becomes your chief desire and you come back to the one who made you, your deepest desire is to be like him. That's what you were made for, again, to reflect his glory. And so we find that actually your moral centre changes and before things you used to enjoy doing, you go, oof, something instinctively in you says, no, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't feel comfortable. Something in me is grieved when I do that. And even if you go on with it, there's this niggle and this sense of grief and it's the new heart. It's the heart of flesh. It's an amazing, amazing miracle that God does. People around us are in a massive quandary regarding unrighteousness. So they see wars, things like the Zimbabwe situation, so how can that happen? Or they see uh, issues on the streets with the stabbings and the gangs and think, what's going on there? Or the schools and the lack of regard for authority. And there's this general sense of a quandary, what's going on? Well, biblically, here's what's going on. The Bible talks about the ungodliness of man leading to the unrighteousness of man. Whereas we tend to start at the unrighteousness of man. Biblically, there's a very deliberate order where actually our ungodliness, our turning away from God, leads to our unrighteousness. But because we were created to worship, if you turn away from God, you still look to worship something. A God of your own making. Another person, maybe, in a relationship. Or a hobby, or a celebrity, or whatever it might be, or a job, or whatever. You, you, that is the thing that takes up your thoughts. How do you know what you worship? What takes up your thoughts? What do you think about when you're not thinking about things? That's how you know what you worship. When you're in the shower, what does your mind go to? That's what you worship. What, what moves you more than anything else? Now, this takes a lot of honesty with ourselves, and sometimes it can be uncomfortable. But I'm going to ask you, what is it that really moves you? That's what you worship. And our unrighteousness is a result of our ungodliness. You can't have true righteousness without God. Because the Bible says that the, the fear of the Lord, having your relationship with him, that's the foundation of wisdom. That's the starting point. You can build a house, you can build a life, but if the foundation's not right, it's all wrong. You've got to get back to, back to the root, the foundation. What are you about? Who are you about? Who are we? Some of you may be doing anthropology at university or something like that. What, what is a person, primarily a worshipper? A worshipper. At, at, at our heart, we are worshippers. We need something to give ourselves to, something to devote ourselves to. We're created to worship. That's what we are. You remove the only worthy object and then chaos ensues as we scurry from here to there looking for a replacement. Idolatry, the Bible calls it. It's dissatisfying. It's corrupting. It's dissatisfying in the sense that those things that promise what only God the Creator can give, they, they, they leave us dissatisfied, they leave us still hungry they leave us still thirsty, still with a sense of that didn't quite do it, that didn't quite do the trick it might have been okay for a season, we've all experienced that haven't we, we've all experienced that, you go to something and it's okay for a while, drink, drink used to be my particular um, God if you like, before I knew Jesus I used to find tremendous uh, relaxation, uh, leisure and fun around that with my friends, that's what we would do, we would just drink and drink and drink, that was what we did and it was fun, temporarily. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't. 
And yet, actually, at the end of that, there's just a niggling sense of that wasn't, that wasn't quite it. The six-pack. It was fun the first day of summer. Taking my T-shirt off at the first sign of sunshine. <laughs> All my friends clocked my motors straight away. Oh, yeah, because you, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, it was fun. Oh, he's not the skinny guy anymore. Oh, great. Yeah, but it kind of, oh, then what? Oh. It just comes and then it's not. Something tremendously unsatisfying and it will dissatisfy. You're left thinking, man, that was, I feel a bit cheated. Not only that, but corrupting. Corrupting, you see, because if you begin to pursue these things that set themselves up as gods but aren't gods, it becomes corrupting. It all goes wrong morally. So this is really where we're at. There needs to be a work of recreation, the Bible says, to put us right. You need the heart of stone taken out and the heart of flesh. Being put in, the Bible calls it being born again. A new heart. What does that new heart look like? Well, next slide please, Seth. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. So what happens is, is that with this new heart, it's got something written on it. He puts a heart of flesh in you and then he writes on it. And it's not laws in the sense of kind of like, how can I put it? Um, <coughs> just an external thing. Oh, I better do this now. Oh, I better do that now. It's desire. So the laws are written into the desire. Okay? The heart being the seat of affections written into it are, the, are, are God's ways. And so you find that there's a desire to love the Lord. A desire to love my neighbour. A desire to give. A desire to serve. A desire to um, build others up. There's this desire. What is that? That's miraculous. That's because the new heart's been put in you, has been written on by the Lord himself with his very likeness. You see, the law is really an expression of God's nature. And so this this heart that gets put in, it's it's God's heart. It's God's nature written into it. And so it's a miracle. You find yourself, wow, I want to do that. I'm wanting to. See, I was brought up in a Christian home. Well, in the sense that I lived with my mum and my mum was a Christian. My dad isn't, but my mum was. And so there would be a sense of I would do Bible studies as I was growing up. But it was a nightmare, to be honest with you. Here's why. Because in my mind, it was something I had to do to achieve to be in with God. And so I would do my daily Bible study, but then I forget for the day, oh man, alive. Now I've got to do two. You forget for a week. I remember literally sitting down doing like a seven-session whammy. And you're like, it's like worse than homework. You think, what is that? That's religion. That's law. If I just do this, then I'm okay. Then I'm in with God. Then God will smile on me. No, you see, what I'm talking about is the opposite of that. It's where the very nature and the heart of God gets put in you. And you, really, our role is to just let those desires flourish and not get in the way. Because you've got a new heart in you if you're born again. You see, it's got God's laws written in it. It's a beautiful thing. Now, in what way is this like... Is this like coming home? Well, here's how it's like coming home. You were made to know him. You were made for friendship with him. As staggering as it seems. And it can seem a bit unreal, I understand that. It's a whole new paradigm, it's a whole new worldview. Because we're brought brought up not really being taught that. We're taught, well, you just get on. You're born, now make something of it. Do well at school, get a decent job, and just try and live and build a decent life. Whereas there's a whole different worldview that says, no, you were created ultimately for a relationship with God. That's not to say you shouldn't do well at school or get a job. But it's saying ultimately this is about you enjoying him and glorifying him. So as, as you experience this new heart coming in and you're recreated, man, I now know why I'm here. It makes sense now. I've come home. This is what it was all about. There's a hunger for the divine in each of us that can only be satisfied in him. So I want to just conclude the first 
way in which we change. Receiving a heart of flesh implies inside-out change. Okay? You don't just adopt new ways of behaviour. It's inside-out change, resulting in Christ-likeness. There's an inevitable direction towards Christ-likeness if the Holy Spirit lives in you and if you've got the new heart in you. Okay? You can fight against it for so long because either you, a lot of Christians you find struggle to actually trust God. And so they know, they, they know that the Lord wants them to do that and their internal heart wants to, but they're afraid or whatever, or they maybe think they know better still, they haven't learnt well enough, and so they, they fight against it, but then they find themselves coming back because they think this is just this futility, what am I doing? Yeah? So there's an inevitability, and an, an, an inevitable direction towards Christ-likeness if you've got the new heart in you. Your God-given personality remains unchanged. Many Christians, I believe, are scared if they totally just fall into Jesus. They'll morph into some kind of, I don't know, they lose what they are. No. Who's the one who knitted you together in your mother's womb? Him. He knows who you are, like no one else does. He'll restore you to what you're always made to be. But he won't, he will in, it will be enhanced. It will be much more colourful. It will be much more the true you. But that takes trust, to trust that he will do that. You'll be restored, you'll be repaired, so in some ways you'll be hardly recognisable. Some elements of me are still very recognisable from before I was a Christian, other elements utterly unrecognisable, because there's been a restoring and a repairing. So the point is this, when you are changed at your core, it's entirely supernatural and yet very natural. Okay? Change number two. He washes us from the effects of sin in our lives. So you get a brand new heart, but not only that, the effects of sin, whether that's the sins that you've done or the sins that have been done against you, there's a washing and a cleansing that brings real transformation. Because remember, next slide. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation, the old has passed away, the new has come. Okay, next slide, Seb. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and see this word, to cleanse us, from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John 1 verse 9. Titus, two, uh, Titus 3 verses 4 and 5. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Spirit. There's a washing when you come to know the Lord. A washing happens. It's beautiful. I remember when I was baptised uh, two months after become, three months after becoming a Christian, I, I, I I stood up and I said, it's just been like I've been cleansed all the way through. Because there's much guilt and much shame that come through sin that we often try to ignore or stick in a corner, but it's still there. When you come and bring that before the Lord, it gets cleansed away. It's very important that you really receive this fully. Here's what it was like in Jesus' time. When Jesus was around, a lot of people would say, I'm not going to eat that food, that'll make me unclean. I'm not going to know I eat that because that will defile me. It, and in order to be clean before God, I mustn't eat this and I mustn't eat that. Listen to what Jesus said. Sir, don't you see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled. Very practical. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart, you see, not the stomach, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile. The sins that you do defile you. The, 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 the harsh words that you say don't just damage that person, they defile you. 
The judgmental attitude that you have towards others doesn't just cause them to feel uncomfortable. It has a defiling effect on your own spirit, on your own heart. You're stained and tainted by it. It's very real. And not only that, other people's sins towards us also bring, often bring shame and a sense of, man, I'm not clean, I'm not in a, I'm not in a good place here. This is, this sin is a pollutant, and it brings premature death to our hearts and our souls. So you can go on living physically, but you see a lot of people, they've died by the time they're 25, 30. They're still living, but they've died. There's none of that childlike joy anymore. There's none of that innocence. There's none of that bounce. That's all been long gone. They've grown cynical, they've grown hard. They've been around this world too long and they've just learned how to survive. That is not the will of God for a believer. That is not the will of God. There's an innocence that the Lord, that the Lord wants to bring to us. Not a naivety, but an innocence. Be as innocent as doves, he says. That's the Lord's will, for you to be, innocent, for you to be like a child. It's a beautiful thing. I, I mean, I, I probably meditate on that more than anything else, the whole childlikeness, because I think it's just so attractive. You know that the Bible says that God teaches God is childlike. Not childish, childlike. There's an innocence about him. He's not been tainted or spoilt by the hardness of this world. He's not like that. I love children, don't you? I love watching children. You want to meditate on the character of God? Watch children. Watch their joy in simple things. Watch their bouncing around and jumping. Just get excited. That's the Lord. The Lord is like that. He's like that. Don't put your own cynical, old ways on him. I think we're a lot older than God. He's the, he's the ancient of days. I think we're often a lot older than him. He's a lot younger and fresher than us. And we need to have our minds conformed to understand that. And you know, the more the culture turns from God and follows its own moral constructs, the more self-destructive and lawless that culture becomes. And we're seeing that. I don't want to act like, you know, oh, you know, I'm going to put the world to rights, but you're seeing it in our nation. We've turned our back on the God of the Bible. And now we wonder, why is things so lawless? Why can't we change it? Throw money at this, throw money at it. It doesn't change anything. Why? The problem is we've turned away from God. You're no longer allowed to say, well, you know, we're going to we're gonna, we're gonna follow the God of the Bible. You can't do that anymore. It's not allowed. No, you must just be all-encompassing and you can't define now and say, well, not this, but the, everything's just say yes to everything. Well, fine, but what you end up with is just a lawless culture because you've actually turned your back on the Lord. But all is not lost. If you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he comes to bring a brand new order and it's an order of cleanliness and holiness. Hallelujah. It's an order where things are renewed constantly, where you're constantly getting shinier and shinier in God. As we admit our corruption and our need for God, do you know what? He doesn't judge us. I think so many people that don't know the Lord and people that do don't want to come to God because they fear of being exposed. If he knows, you know, it's like if I just admit what I've done, he's going to come down on me like a ton of bricks. No, he won't. That's the point. Today's the day of salvation, not the day of judgment. That will come, but it's God's desire that actually on that day, it's God's desire that he need judge anyone because everyone's got saved. Everyone said, God, forgive me, cleanse me. It takes, it takes trust that when you do that, instead of judging you and condemning you and wiping you out, he will embrace you. I mean, it's the story of the prodigal son. Me and Davina just read it last night. It's beautiful. You've got this son who just treats his father despicably. Give me my inheritance before it's time. Basically saying, I wish you were dead. Goes off and squanders it. And then a famine hits the land. All his money's gone. He goes back and he says, well, I'll just, I'll say, look, can I be a servant, not a son? And I've sinned against heaven and against you. And he's got all this speech planned so he can work his way back into his father's good books. And he, 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 you can see him sort of wincing as he comes over the hill. The father runs towards him. 
He runs. What is, what is this? It's the nature of God. He throws his arms around him, kisses him. Quick, my son's returned. Get the best robe on him. Put a ring on his finger. You think, what is this? Grace. It's, that's your welcome in that presence of God. That's how we call. When you confess your sins, he rejoices, he dances, he sings because he knows you trust him. He knows you trust him. Whenever you don't trust him, it's like it breaks his heart. He says, don't you, underst- don't you understand me? Don't you know me? Whenever my children don't trust me, it breaks my heart. I think, come on. Whenever I ever thrown you into a road or anything, I've never done anything like that. You're acting like that's what I do. Trust me. It breaks his heart when we just say, oh, I'll stay back, I'll stay away. No. He wants to lavish you with forgiveness and then wash you. How does he wash you? With the blood of his son. Ooh. Sounds a bit funny. How does that work? Sounds a bit like, a bit gory. How does it work? Wash you with the blood of his son. In the Old Testament, they would constantly, when they would sin, they would, they would kill different various animals. Why? Well, it spoke of this, that sin deserves death. And so because of my sin, this animal must die. It was a symbolic, figurative act of atonement and forgiveness, if you like. But it spoke of sin, sin deserves death. All this talk of grace doesn't, doesn't mean we're saying sin is not a problem. Sin's a massive problem. So, so what they would do is they would sacrifice different animals for different kinds of offerings, but basically all to do with sin or either sin or guilt. But none of those animals, the Bible teaches, could ever actually atone for our sin, because the blood of an animal cannot atone for the sin of a person. What it will take is a perfect man, who is able to stand before God completely righteously and offer his blood for the sins of the entire world, past, present and future, into Jesus. And so his blood didn't just symbolically and figuratively, um, wasn't, wasn't symbolically and figuratively spilt for our sin, but in real terms was spilt for our sin. He really died for us. And so whenever you confess your sin before God, you're forgiven, but you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's what it means when Christians think, why are these Christians so excited about the blood? Here's what it is. It's not that we're just really kind of gory. It's like it, it speaks of our being put right before God and our being cleansed in the presence of God. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. In what way is it like coming home, becoming a child again? Kids are so innocent. The Bible says that we're all born with sinful hearts, but there's an innocence as well. You can't deny that. They've they've not had anything wrong done to them normally, and they've not done any wrong, and they're just innocent. Their eyes are wide with wonder and joy at life. That is what the Christian life should be like. Not that we're naive, we just, we just believe everything everyone tells us, but there's a sense of, ah, I'm like a child again. Whoa, I've been, it should be like coming out of the shower, coming out of the bath, you feel all fresh and clean. Don't you want to see that restored in your life and in your mind more and more? This is God's plan. This is God's plan. If anyone is in Christ, is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Finally, we are cut off from the family line or the generational patterns of sinfulness and futility that we've inherited and we receive a brand new family line as we come into Christ. Next slide, Seb. And, um, oh, I think we've done that one. Sorry. And again. And again. Okay. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Look at this. Futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, we are so individualistic, and here's what it means. When, I, when you think of yourself, you don't tend to think of your um, community or your family line that way. Neither do you think of it that way. So here's what I mean. If I ask you about you, very often people that are Westerners don't speak loads about their family, their wider family, because we're a very individualistic society. Not only that, we don't think much about where we've come from. Okay? 
Whereas the Hebrew mind was very different. So they would think in terms of their community, but also I'm son of so-and-so, son of so They saw themselves in the light of their family line. We don't tend to do that. But I tell you, in many ways, many of us are the product of our family lines. We carry the good, very often, and also the bad of our family line, our parents. Many of us would live under the same wrong ways of thinking as mums and dads of our mums and dads. In some families, the futility and sinfulness is very blatant. Alcoholism, incest, those kinds of things. It's very, very blatant. In others, it's more subtle. Perfectionism, control, selfish ambition. It's different. But in all of those things, anything that is ungodly, the Lord wants to cut us off from when we come to know him. So you don't have to live under the yoke, if you like, the weight of what your mum and dad live under. Okay? It's very, very important. The Bible is very clear on this, that through the blood of Christ we are ransomed, not just from our own particular past, but from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. The blood of Jesus covers that. And how many Christians, I wonder, and how many people full stop think to to themselves, well, this is just the way it's going to be. Have you ever tried not to be like one of your particular parents in a certain element of them that you really don't like with all your willpower, only to find that it becomes worse. Yeah? So, for example, your mum's a warrior. You think, oh, I'm not going to do that. You know, so you're a wild teenager, and you think, my mum's warrior all the time. When I grow older, I'm not going to be like that. Then you have kids. Oh, stop that. Oh, oh, and then they get older. Oh, where you been? Oh, you're five minutes late. And it's, this is the same thing. <coughs> I sound just like my mum. What is that? It's that. Futile ways inherited from your forefathers. And I wonder how many of you are really in faith about walking free from the futile ways of your forefathers. Part of God's inheritance for you. It's part of God's plan. It's part of what the blood of Jesus does. You might think, well, why, is it, why, is, why, why are there futile ways? Take your ancestry right back to Adam and you'll discover why. It all goes back to Adam, yours and mine, okay? In the garden, Adam decided he knew best. God says, don't eat from that one tree. Adam and Eve ate from it. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, basically saying, I'll decide what's right and wrong. I'll make my own decisions, thank you very much. From that point on, futility, sin entered. And that's what we just walk in now. You have to trace it back. So how can you get separated, cut off from that line of Adam? Well, there's another Adam coming along called Jesus, the last Adam. And the Bible says he came to undo everything that Adam did. And if you become born again, you get transferred your family line out of Adam into Jesus. And that old Adam's sin no longer has any authority over you. Now some things are broken instantly, other things take time as God works gently with us, he knows what we can handle. But I tell you, every futile way inherited from your forefathers in Christ Jesus can and will be broken. Absolutely. And sometimes you just need to be practical and speak to someone and say, can you help me with this? It's something I'm struggling with and all of that. But, you, but at the end of the day, the bottom line is the blood of Christ will deal with it. It's the blood of Jesus. So it extends in every direction. Width-wise, it's just beautiful, universal in its power. How's it coming home? Here's how it's coming home. Paradise lost. Everyone lives with paradise lost. It's no coincidence. Why do we live with that? Because that's what we were made for, paradise. It's not idealism. The whole thing of, oh, you know, if only it was like this. You see those postcards with, you know, those postcards of like the Bahamas. You think, oh, you was made for that. You were made for it. 
Or your, your dream holiday, and you imagine it's all going to be perfect. What is that? You were made, we were, all of the futilities and anxieties of life are imposters. They weren't supposed to be there. We ruined it by our own willfulness and our own sinfulness. You were created for perfection and created for glory. Isn't it a wonderful thought that through the blood of Christ, as you yourself get married and have children, which most of you, I guess, either will or want to, that you can see those old patterns from the past broken and your children walk free as you've walked free. Isn't that a wonderful prospect? And start to think, we often just think so much about our own life and how it's going to be. We need to start thinking generationally so that we can see restoration and repair come through the blood of Jesus. I want to just conclude by saying this. And I didn't say this at the start because some of you would have found it so incredible you might not have carried on listening. But here's the thing. The reason why internal and lasting transformation is possible is because it's God's plan to recreate the entire cosmos through Jesus. It is God's plan to recreate the whole thing. So everything involved in the cosmos is subject to recreation. Those who resist that and decide that they don't want that, then, okay, that's your decision. People don't go to hell because God's horrible. People go to hell because they choose to go. Okay? It's your, it's every, we all have our choice. God is offering recreation to everyone to be part of his new creation. The, the offer is flung open to everybody in this room and everybody outside of this room. It's God's gracious desire that everyone gets saved. In the Bible, Jesus Christ appearing is, is seen as a second genesis. It's like, right, this is, ne- is, this is it now. It's starting. This is the beginning of new creation. And Jesus' death signifies the end, the, the end of what is corrupt, the end of that is, which is growing old. And his resurrection makes it clear that everyone who's in him will be resurrected. It's all inevitable because of God's universal plan. It will culminate in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness, righteousness dwell. It will be as physical as this creation here. Please do not see the afterlife as some vague, ethereal, floating around idea. It's concrete. New heavens and a new earth. Be just as physical, just as real, just as tangible, but without sin, without corruption, without satanic influence, without temptation, without disease, without death, all the stuff that came in through Adam and Eve's sin will have been dealt with through Jesus, okay? But brand new creation, brand new heavens, and a brand new earth. Um, next slide, Seb, just to show you about that. Uh, and again, inc- no, yep, no. Oh, oh wow. You've really gone through some there. That was amazing. Can, can we go back to 2 Corinthians 5.19? Great. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. See that? not counting their trespasses against them. In Christ, God was saying, I want you all back. All of you. Next one, said Colossians. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Everything in creation. Through the blood of Christ, it was God's design. God's desire to bring back. This is the will of God. Many of you are part of this new creation. Many of you today, you have been caught up in this. And you think, how did I get into this? Just through being joined to Jesus. Every blessing you get is simply through your union with Jesus. Nothing that you've done. The historical Jesus of the Bible, not a Jesus of your own making, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who aren't, you think, I'm not part of this. How can you be? What's required? Well, really, I could use the common word of repentance, which people don't really often know what it means. I'm talking about returning. Return to Jesus. 
It's about returning to the one who made you and who made you for him. That's what it involves. It's a, it's a, it's a, a returning to the one who made you and the one who loves you. It's not some religious thing, because repentance can sound so religious, it's returning. Okay? So you turn away from independence, from pride, from I'll do it my own way, thank you, from it's my life, and you say, I'm going to come back to you and trust that doing it your way will work out infinitely times better. That's, that's what God asks of you. And that you forsake everything that's corrupt, empty, growing old, and everything that's unlike him. Sexual impurity. The Lord created sex to be really the, um, the climax of the covenant expressed between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. That's what it's for. It's, it, it's, it speaks of this um, incredible um, commitment to one another for life. That's what it speaks of. It's this vivid picture of, I am yours, you are mine, we are one, and we are working out what this oneness means to the end of our days. It's also a picture of Christ and the church. It's a, it's a prophetic signpost of the intimacy, the spiritual union between Christ and the church. You see, and again, eternal commitment to one another. That's what it speaks of. That's what it points towards. It's a glorious thing. And it's when you see that, that you understand that sex outside of that context, is, it, it's fragmented. It's, it's not what it was made for. It's supposed to be a, an amazing prophetic thing pointing towards the beauty of Christ and, and, and the church in eternal covenant. That's why I make a big deal about marriage. Not because oh, they're the, those old-fashioned people. No, it's not about that. It's about the glory, seeing the glory of God's creation restored, seeing it, things God's put God's way again. Lovelessness, about forsaking lovelessness. So I want to live a life of love now, by the power of the Spirit. Shameful things, things you think, oh, oh gosh, this is, you know, I can't believe I did that. You know, there, are things, there are things I did before I was a Christian, I can't believe I did. I'm ashamed of myself, absolutely. And I've put it right, I've confessed it before God, and I even chose a particular friend who I knew I could trust to just tell him, because I just wanted to. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another and be healed. There's a healing that comes, a cleansing that comes. You turn away from that. You turn away. And counterfeit spirituality. Things which offer, you know, oh yeah, offer spiritual experience, but it's not based in Jesus. It's just a satanic counterfeit. You turn from that, living for number one, and turn wholeheartedly, return to your maker. And uh, just trust him like a child. And you demonstrate that through baptism. That's what baptism's about. You're saying, I've been joined to Jesus. In his death, is burial and being raised up into newness of life with him. It's all about being joined with Jesus, this whole thing. We're going to take bread and wine in just a minute as we sing our songs now. We take bread and wine every week so that we always make sure we vividly remember Jesus' death on the cross for our sins until his return, because he's coming back for us. If you're not a believer, listen, the bread and wine are here. You want to be joined with Jesus today, come down, take the bread and take the wine. And in your heart, you haven't got a prayer, clever prayer or a fancy prayer. It's not about that. But in your heart, you return and you say, Jesus, I want to I be with you now. I don't want to live my own way anymore. I want to follow after you. And you can come to speak to me or one of the other guys afterwards and we'll, we'll talk about, right, let's get you baptised and get you started on your journey following Jesus and life to the full. Amen? Amen. For the 
have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me let's depart, no tongue can bid me let's Before the throne of God above, I have a strong perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no sun can bid me Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted. For 